electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. We will certainly see you on Closing Bell, Sarah. Looking forward uh, to that. But right now, I'm Wilfred Frost and Kelly Evans uh, on The Exchange. Welcome. Here's what's ahead on the show. The administration ramping up its China rhetoric and blaming several U.S. companies uh, for being part of the problem. Just saber rattling or is it really a big worry for Wall Street? We'll debate. Plus, tech lower once again with Netflix leading the declines on growth concerns by elevating one of Hollywood's most powerful people to co-CEO. Is the streaming giant making the right move? And a different way to play the stay-at-home trade. We're cooking up some kitchen stocks poised for big gains. But we begin with today's broader markets. And Bob Pisani, as always, has a breakdown for us. Hey, Bob. Uh, hi, Wolf. Uh, it's another day of choppy trading, but it's a very narrow trading range. Let me just show you what major indices are doing. S&P is only moving at a 20-point range here. That's not particularly wide. Uh, by and large, banks and energy, a uh, little bit of weakness there. That's against the trend here. But tech's very flat. Mega caps, as Wolf mentioned, all down. Amazon's down another 1% today. Amazon's down 8% for the week. I know everybody's focused on Netflix down 7%, but keep an eye on Amazon. It's been on a downtrend all throughout the week. We're knocking on the door of 32.30. We've had a lot of problems getting over that. Those were the old June highs and also where we started at the beginning of the year, right around 32.30, 32, 32, 32, 32. You saw that resistance there. That's a chart of the S&P week uh, year to date here. So the main trading themes this week, rotation out of tech, mega cap software, and into the what we call value, the banks, industrials, transports, energy. There you see technologies down for the week, but transports, industrial energy, all the cyclical names are on the upside. Home improvement, everybody doing everything to their homes. We had new highs, Sherwin-Williams and Masco and Lennar this week, Watsco, which, uh, which is a big air conditioning, Pool Corp does pools, of course, new highs there. What's moving the markets? Just remember here, Optimism on the vaccine is the primary mover of the market for the bulls, but that reopening, reclosing story is tough. Tech valuation is an issue, and we have wild cards on what stimulus is going to happen and China tensions. Remember, still not clear on what earnings are doing here because a lot of companies just are declining to provide guidance. Guys, back Bob, to you. Bob, so clearly we've had a bit of rotation uh, to this week uh, out of uh, tech into value. Is it surprising that that's happened on a week when we, we haven't really had the best economic data, you could even argue quite the opposite. And, and on top of that, the banks ending the week soft in a week in which they reported. And again, to that point about economic outlook, none of the CEOs were positive about the economic outlook. And yet the value cyclical stocks have been the best performers this week. Yeah, I hate to say this, but you're trying to act rationally, Wilf. Uh, the, the real truth is the market is very much in the hands of momentum traders right now. And you can see this in the, what happens in the tech situation. So I, I think momentum and relative positioning is actually more important than the fundamental issues which you mentioned and which, by the way, I agree with. So when you see stocks that go parabolic all of a sudden are up 10 to 15 percent in two weeks and so no particular change in the outlook other than people are piling into it. And then you get any kind of sensitive commentary like what happened with Netflix slightly off. 
Well, you see what the results are. So I wish we could say that, that uh, you know, uh, rational long-term actors are moving the markets today. But in technology, I think it's very much momentum-driven. And we all know they're weak hands. Bob Sani, as always, thanks very much. Uh, S&P 500, just positive, Dow just negative. Now, in a scathing speech yesterday, Attorney General Bill Barr criticized companies from Silicon Valley and Hollywood to Wall Street uh, for kowtowing to the Chinese Communist Party, saying the leadership's ultimate ambition isn't to trade with the U.S., but to raid the country. Despite rising tensions, Chinese stocks have enjoyed a strong three months, uh, powered by the likes of Alibaba and JD.com. In fact, according to the city, uh, note uh, out recently, uh, they're some of the best performers in Asia. But uh, all of the names uh, have stumbled uh, over 5% this week in China as rhetoric has been ramped up. Uh, here to help us navigate this uh, investing tightrope, Stephen Roach, former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and senior fellow at the Yale University, uh, as well as uh, Derek Scissors, Asia economist at the American Enterprise Institute and chief economist at the China Beige Book. A very good uh, afternoon to you both. Uh, if I start with you, uh, Derek, I mean, was there legitimacy in the criticism by the uh, AG yesterday towards a lot of these companies, or, or was it overdone? Well, I, I think there's legitimate criticism. I'm not sure how useful it is. Uh, as somebody in the policy community, we deal a lot with lobbying, especially by the tech companies, saying, you know, we make a lot of money in China. That's good for American innovation. Not sure about that second part. Uh, and, and, and discourage U.S. action. So I think that part of it is legitimate. The attorney general feels like he's heard a lot of it. I'm sure he has. The question is what to do about it. Uh, simply complaining doesn't improve U.S. policy. Uh, it doesn't improve the situation of the American economy. And that's not really his job. That's the job of the Treasury Secretary, the Commerce Secretary, of the United States Trade Representative. So I think the complaints are legitimate. I just don't think they, they add anything. Uh, Stephen, Morgan Stanley operated, uh, been operating in China for, for many years. Do you think uh, has Morgan Stanley has seen any of its IP stolen over the course of uh, the last couple of decades? Well, well if I've been um, retired from Morgan Stanley for now um, nearly 10 years, uh, during that period, I was uh, a member of the board of directors of Morgan Stanley's joint venture with the China Construction Bank. And I can assure you that there was a no uh, forcing of any technology transfer. We were partners building China's first investment bank, and we shared business practices, personnel, strategies, and uh, financial services technology. And in my uh, uh, capacity uh, as a businessman operating a joint venture uh, in China, I had discussions with many counterparts in many industries outside of finance, and with um, just a few exceptions, the notion of forcing uh, the technology transfer coercion is just not fact-based at all. Uh, nonetheless, uh, Stephen, we, we are where we are with these uh, elevating tensions. Do you think it is just more hot rhetoric and that perhaps after the election it'll cool down again? Or have we passed a, a turning point? I mean, particularly when you see a country like the UK, uh, who has a lot more to gain from its relationship with China in a relative sense, uh, percentage of GDP terms, uh, make such a big U-turn. Are we past uh, a particular moment in time in terms of relations with China? I certainly hope not, and I do not think so. Of course, that's very dependent, Wilf, on the outcome of the election. But make no mistake about it, the attorney general's speech yesterday was just the, the latest in a long string of political blustering that started uh, with um, 
National Security um, uh, Council Director O'Brien, continue with FBI Director Ray, and will undoubtedly heat up with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The Republican strategy, as documented in a leaked um, uh, report by O'Donnell and Associates in Politico in April of this year, called the Corona Big Book, look it up, says very clearly, when things get bad on the pandemic, and, and Lord knows they're, they're going from bad to worse right now, don't defend Trump, attack China. This is a political uh, uh, effort by the uh, attorney general, which is very unfortunate because he's supposed to be an apolitical uh, representative of the people in leading the Department of Justice, not the president. Um, Derek, where do you see these tensions uh, going from here? And, and do you think the election's a key swing factor or have we seen quite a similar tone uh, from Vice President Biden in terms of being uh, uh, America first rather than pro-China? Well, I, I do think um, the election is going to matter. Vice President Biden uh, was part of the Obama administration, which had a very different policy towards China than the Trump administration, certainly in words. Um, people in the Biden camp are arguing even now over, over where the U.S. should go. But I'll point out that this is not a Republican uh, position to, to turn uh, the U.S. away from China to some extent. Uh, bills in the Congress have passed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities. The, the most recent bill, uh, co-authored by Senator Toomey, a Republican, and also Senator Van Hollen, a Democrat, passed the Senate and the House easily, really no opposition from either party, has to do with Hong Kong and restrictions on, on Chinese entities that are suppress human rights in Hong Kong. So the vice president, if he were to win the election, certainly has the opportunity to change the tone uh, in U.S.-China. He may not have the opportunity, even if he wants it, to change the direction of U.S. policy, to change restrictions on U.S. business with China that matter to investors and also matter to the national interest, because that is a bipartisan effort, as we've seen for four years in the Congress. Um, Stephen, quick final question. Shanghai index pulled back 5% this week after a, a very strong run. Had it overheated a bit? Well, the, the markets have, have certainly been frothy um, uh, around the world, including, of course, um, uh, the United States. And the, the pullback in China, I think, is just a typical um, sort of volatility uh, factor uh, and uh, hard to tell where we're going from here. But if these uh, political... Uh, attacks uh, heat up, then, you know, there could be more pressure on markets around the world, including our own. Stephen and uh, Derek, thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Will. Now, the U.S. setting a new a daily record of coronavirus cases nationwide. Meg Terrell joins me now with the very latest. Hey, Meg. Hey, well, if these numbers are hard to believe. More than 71,000 new coronavirus cases reported uh, yesterday in the U.S. by states. And if you look at the Johns Hopkins data or other data, it's even higher, 75,000 or 77,000, depending on how you're counting. That as hospitalizations are now reaching rates we haven't seen since April, and as the number of deaths reported each day in this country is also starting to rise. Let's look at the states that are seeing the highest case counts. Florida yesterday reporting 
14,000 new cases. Today, more than 11,000. Texas also reporting more than 10,000. California, 8,500. Multiple states reporting more than 1,000 daily new cases, 14 of them. One possible bright spot is Arizona uh, continuing to look flat at about 3,000 daily new cases. Georgia being highlighted today by Scott Gottlieb as at a potential important point for being able to reverse things. Right now, it's looking quite bad. Hospitalizations, as you can see, are spiking. Uh, Deaths also on the rise there. More than 3,500 cases reported yesterday. This as well, if Dr. Fauci was just talking uh, about the progress on a vaccine, he said he is cautiously optimistic after seeing the data uh, presented this week from Moderna and other data. Here's what he said. We feel cautiously optimistic that we are on the road, as bleak as it may sound right now, that we are on the road of getting this under control. A message, Wolf, we all need to hear as these numbers look like they just keep getting worse. But, but Meg, the point uh, there in terms of the, uh, the vaccine, optimism from Dr. Fauci, still doesn't change the point that we also heard from Ken Frazier earlier this week in terms of it effectively being usable nationwide is, is a 2021 uh, likelihood, not 2020. Yeah, Dr. Fauci has said, you know, end of 2020, probably beginning of 2021, if all goes well, that we could start broadly distributing the vaccine. And that won't mean that everybody can get vaccinated immediately either. Meg, thank you very much uh, for that. And we certainly hope those deaths don't start picking up to the tune of the cases. Uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb will be on Closing Bell to discuss that later. Coming up, we're drilling down uh, on the stay-at-home trade with a look at kitchen stocks, the name's best position to serve up big gains. That's coming next. Plus... Students and teachers scrambling to find personal protective equipment with the start of the school year just weeks away. Uh, A closer look at the latest challenge facing the class of COVID-19. And as we head to break, take a look at uh, sectors, healthcare and information technology in a lead consumer discretionary energy uh, towards the bottom of the pile. A slight reversal of the theme uh, that has dominated the week. Uh, S&P just positive, Dow just negative. Uh, We'll be right back. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, a recent survey of, uh, by Bank of America of uh, various respondents uh, showed that just 48% of people uh, feel comfortable dining out at some point before Labor Day. Decline from 58% in April, with the U.S. in various states of uh, reopening. Uh, the one thing is for sure, more meals are going to be consumed at home. This dynamic is cooking up potential gains for ver- various stocks uh, centered around the kitchen. Let's bring in Liz Suzuki, research analyst at Bank of America S- Securities. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Um, key, key takeaway, I guess, from your survey is that uh, people are kind of quite content to, to stay at home, even if the rules around them are changing. 
Yeah, exactly. We found that 86% uh, of survey respondents want to spend more time at home, even as restrictions lift. And so it seems like this stay at home trend is going to be here to stay for a while. In fact, another 60% of survey respondents said that they prefer to work from home if given the option. I mean, compare that to 5% of people who worked from home before COVID. And just even if some portion of that 60% ends up working from home for the longer period, the longer term, or you know, if there's some hybrid model that's developed where you work at home a couple days a week, you go to the office a couple days a week, either way, it, it points to more people spending more time at home more time in their kitchens, more time in their home office, more time in their backyards. I mean, there are a lot of different uh, rooms of the home where this is relevant. And so in this particular note of our homework sur uh, service, um, we, we decided to look at the home kitchen in particular, because this is the, the heart of the home. So we tied in our restaurants analysts, our, uh, you know, our, our home products, brands, rest, uh, analysts, and, uh, and our, our food and, uh, and grocers analysts as well. And is it in the area of eating that there's the biggest impact that the restaurants will suffer and uh, various other uh, eat-at-home type stocks will benefit? Which ones in particular? Yeah, so, you know, it isn't all restaurants that are necessarily disadvantaged. You know, those that excel at, uh, you know, at, at delivery are in a pretty good spot. We have seen an increase in, uh, in food delivery. And then those grocers that also offer delivery as well. I mean, we found that 50% of survey respondents are ordering groceries online since COVID and 26% of those were first time users. So there's a pretty big, uh, pretty big increase in online grocery ordering. And you've probably seen it in your own you know, grocery bills as well, that not only are people ordering more food in every order, but they're also seeing increases in food prices. So mm -hmm. you know, we've seen a I think uh, right now the the CPI for for stay at home food is up at you know at eight year highs. So there's been a pretty big increase in in food categories. Um, and what about the uh, work from home aspect of us? Uh, office supplies, that sort of thing, are, are they benefiting? Absolutely. Yeah, we've seen a big increase in consumer electronics spending. I mean, home furnishings as well. Um, I think one thing that really ties all of this together, too, is that the home improvement stocks are tied into every room of the house. Right. So if you're building a home office, you are you know, maybe even adding a room or in some cases, you know, doing some work to, you know, to delineate a space to work in. Or if you are you know, building a playground in your backyard because camp is canceled for the summer, you know, that all, there's a lot of different ways that the home improvement stocks are tied to this. And so that's where we've been seeing the most consistent strength in, uh, in our credit card data that we follow and in other indicators as well. So give us a couple of these standout stock recommendations. Sure. I mean, we really like Lowe's and Tractor Supply right now. I mean, these are both um, both both companies that we liked before COVID as well. I think there is a longer term margin growth story here. There's self-help as, as well as just the COVID theme. So, you know, with Lowe's, for example, they saw very strong same store sales growth in the last quarter. We think that that continues and we think that estimates actually look a little bit too low um, for the upcoming second quarter that's gonna be announced in August. And then going forward, we think about the longer term opportunity and that there's this entire wave of millennials that are starting to think about moving. You know, rates are very low, so it, that becomes appealing as, you know, now is the time to get out of the city. And so we think that there's there's a tailwind to this that could last well beyond COVID and that this could be a multi-year investment opportunity. Liz Suzuki, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So to come, Netflix uh, forging ahead with its transition from tech to media. This is the stock falls on growth concerns. Is it the right move to shoot for the stars for Netflix? We'll debate. Plus, 
It's like an Airbnb for pools and people are diving in. A look at one startup that is taking off during the pandemic. As a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange, back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets essentially flat as we stand here on Friday afternoon. Dow just lower, S&P, uh, Nasdaq just higher. Reversing the theme we've seen for most of this week, today tech is outperforming, value underperforming, but uh, the reverse is true for the week as a whole. Here are some uh, individual movers this hour. Shares of Crocs falling today on the back of a downgrade to neutral at CL King on valuation concerns. Shares have climbed over 50% over the past three months uh, ahead of this. Uh, they're down, what, 5% or so uh, today. Uh, and the S&P Biotech ETF, that's the XBI, hit an all-time intraday high today, led uh, by the likes of Novavax and Moderna, which have surged more than 38% so far this week on COVID-19-related news. The XBI, as you can see, up about 2.5% today, up 3.7% for the week. Finally, let's have a look at cruise stocks. Royal Caribbean, Norwegian and Carnival all falling today after the CDC banned U.S. cruises through the end of September. Uh, those names, as you can see, down around about 2 to 3%. They had a good start to the week, uh, a bad second half of the week for the cruise stock. So let's get to Sue Herrera now for a news update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Wilf. Good to see you. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg revealing she has been undergoing chemotherapy for a recurrence of cancer, this time in her liver, but she has no plans to retire. The 87-year-old says the treatment is yielding positive results, and she remains able to work at what she says is full steam. A group of America's leading CEOs are calling on all corporations to step up and mandate face coverings in their businesses to prevent what they call, quote, devastating long-term consequences, end quote. And Daniel Snyder, the majority owner of Washington, D.C.'s football team, says, quote, the behavior described in yesterday's Washington Post article has no place in our franchise or society, end quote. The team has now hired an outside law firm to conduct an investigation into the sexual misconduct and verbal abuse allegations made against several former team executives. You are up to date. I will see you in an hour. That's the news update. Wilf, back to you. Sue, thank you so much uh, for that. See you later on Closing Bells. Um, now, we're just uh, a few weeks away from the start of the school year and uh, new supplies are topping back-to-school shopping lists. Elon Moy uh, joins us with that story. Hey, Elon. Hey, Wilfred. Well, it's a sign of the times. Check out the school supply list that we put together for the COVID era. Disposable gloves for janitors. That's expected to cost the average school district over $1,000. 
Hand sanitizer for the classroom is more than $39,000. Masks for staff are about $44,000. And of course, you need extras in case students forget or lose theirs. That's another $148,000. And all of that is assuming that schools can even find these supplies. We talked to one educator in Florida who convinced a local paper mill to manufacture disinfectant. She then soaked some napkins in it and made her own DIY Clorox wipes. Napkins don't cost as much as it would to buy Clorox wipes because now they're doubling the price. If something costs $10 back before COVID, it's $20 now. So it's a good way to help save money and we get what we need. Well, she did say that she believes her school will be safe if they can get the supplies they need and if everyone can follow the rules. But she does acknowledge those are two big ifs. Back over to you. Elon, those numbers are astonishing, those estimates. I, I, think, I think you said they were per school. I couldn't quite read the, the, the graphic from where I am. Either way, very high. To what extent is, is this because there's price inflation in those products compared to if we were, say, in, in 2018 or 19 uh, versus just the, the, the volumes they need. I guess everything spiked quite aggressively back in March or April, but it, for normal consumers like you or, you or I, we, we can get our hands on those products again in a way that we couldn't a couple of months ago. Yeah, so I think it's a little bit of both, Wilf. These numbers are based on a survey of school districts estimating what they were paying um, at the time for some of these products and then extrapolating across average school districts across the country. Uh, so some of those price increases may be baked in here, but that's why teachers unions are looking for an extra $56 billion from the federal government uh, to help cover some of these costs. It's unlikely they're going to see that level of help from Washington, uh, but still they say that is what they're going to be needing in order to make sure where the classrooms are clean and safe, never mind all the additional investments in technology, et cetera, that they're, that they're also going to need to be making. Ilan, thanks very much uh, for that. Still to come, we'll talk about BlackRock's uh, very strong numbers and uh, also, never mind work from home, uh, we'll look at uh, back to work uh, as a trade and uh, see which stocks you should be buying for that. The exchange back in two. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid Fire here with their take today. Seema Modi, Robert Frank and Leslie Picker. Good afternoon to you all. Uh, first topic, shares of BlackRock higher today after topping earnings estimates for the second quarter, including a 21% jump in profits, thanks uh, in part to uh, $100 billion in net client inflows as investors lean into fixed income funds amid coronavirus uncertainty. BlackRock ending the quarter with more than $7 trillion in total assets under management. Leslie, uh, what else uh, should we be uh, focused on in, in these numbers in particular? So when you look at BlackRock earnings, it's all about the flows and their individualized businesses. And one of the interesting things that stood out to me is that we saw about $4.4 billion in net outflows in equity funds, which is surprising because of the appreciation that we saw in the stock markets over the quarter. And then they saw inflows, net inflows of about $60 billion in their fixed income products, which is largely seen in the industry as kind of the sea changed for fixed income ETFs. We saw a 30% increase in those products year over year. Uh, that's surprising because historically people haven't really turned to fixed income ETFs as much as they have in, in 
uh, equity ETFs. In fact, the equity penetration is about 5%. Fixed income is about 1% so far. Uh, so that was seen as a, a big um, bright spot of their earnings and the potential for that product moving forward. And, and Leslie, just, I mean, for some context, obviously, this was a strong quarter. That was partly expected because of the market rebound. Q1 was disappointing, which uh, I, I would just point out as well, the banks mm-hmm. back in Q1 that have wealth management divisions didn't actually see outflows. They saw the market level decline, of course, like everybody. Uh, but they managed to keep some inflows or, or, or not any outflows because people just shifted from equities within to cash for them. And BlackRock, though, mm-hmm. was poor Q1 and strong Q2. Right. And we saw a lot of people uh, move into cash, into the money market funds within BlackRock as well. Uh, but you're right. Q1 was was disappointing. Profit saw massive declines in the first quarter for BlackRock. Uh, you know, their their earnings are dependent on two things. They're dependent on flows, as we talked about. And they're also dependent on beta, whether or not the market goes up and down, because they take a fee from the amount of money that they manage overall. So if they see their assets under management decline and in the first quarter, they saw about a trillion dollars in AUM quarter over quarter uh, evaporate. Uh, you know, that makes a big difference in terms of their profitability, in terms of their margins and in terms of their money coming in the door. Robert, I don't know if you saw the interview with uh, Mr. Fink this morning, but do you think he wants the Treasury Secretary job? My my takeaway from that great exchange with Joe at the end of it was he'd definitely say yes if offered. (laughs) Yeah, he said he's happy where he is. I thought there there was a really sobering message in that interview, though. He was asked whether this crisis will be worse than the financial crisis of 2008. And he said yes. He said that financial crisis of 2008 was really started and ended with housing and the financial sector, whereas this time it's all parts of the economy. And I thought that was a little bit troubling when you look at how long it could take to get out of all this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Well, we hope he's wrong, but uh, we certainly listened to that message. Uh, Moving on to the next story, we've heard plenty about companies that are benefiting from the stay-at-home trade. What about companies that could benefit from employees returning to work, whether quickly or otherwise. Seema, you've, uh, you've been digging into this for us. Yeah, Wilfred, who knew plexiglass would be such a hot item this summer? But as offices and factories reopen their doors to employees, they're embracing a number of different safety products to minimize the risk of infection. So yes, plexiglass that you many times will see when you enter the door of an office or of a company, safety goggles, N95 masks, air purifiers. The one interesting technology gaining traction, wearable sensors. We spoke to New Lab in Brooklyn, which houses about 100 different startups. They're starting to welcome entrepreneurs in and they're asking employees to wear the sensor, which basically allows them to maintain social distancing in the office. In fact, it will buzz when you are less than six feet away from a colleague. Now, certainly generating an interesting debate, Wilfred, will employees be receptive to wearing the sensor? Uh, others saying, you know what, we'll do whatever it takes to ensure that we're staying safe as we get back to work. And so, Seema, has the price of plexiglass risen a lot? Because if it has, whilst Kelly's out, we could pawn off this, this desk of hers. It's, I don't know if it's quite plexiglass, but it's something similar. <laughs> And just sell it in the black market. Yeah, we'll just, uh, I we'll believe get... the price is up. Perfect. Yes. Done. There's no, a company that... named Barry Global that uh, is a publicly listed company that does sell plexiglass. Uh, a couple of others as well have talked about heightened demand for this specific type of resin plastic. D- don't, don't let's tell Kelly until we've uh, made that trade. Robert, uh, uh, it's pivoting to it. a slightly more reasonable note, uh, but with that in mind is... Uh, With all of these uh, pharma companies that may or may not come up with treatments and vaccines, there's there's more of a moral question about making profits on on making products related to COVID. 
For, for this sort of thing, I don't think that really applies. And, and so, as Seema's suggesting, with the list of, of products and companies, they, they could be in for a windfall. Yeah, it's just really a demand problem and supply problem. I mean, there just isn't enough of plexiglass material to go around. There's at least a six-month wait for this stuff, and their order's already into 2021. I just wonder what's going to happen to all this plexiglass if and when we have a vaccine and life is more normal. We're going to have, you know, tons and tons of leftover plexiglass. I think whoever starts a business building plexiglass homes or plexiglass cars or something, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of it. Or, or anchor desks. Um, anyway, we will see what yes. happens there. Uh, <laughs> next up, uh, as uh, more and more high-income families leave New York City, private schools in nearby suburbs are seeing a surge in new applicants. Uh, is this a sign that urban flight is here to stay? Robert, you've been following this story. Is, is the level of uh, applicants to these uh, out-of-town schools much higher than was expected? Yeah, in fact, it's double. If you look at the Hamptons, you look at Westchester, you look at what's happening in Connecticut, all these private schools typically get, you know, a couple dozen applicants in the spring or summer. Now it's 60, 70, 80 applicants, and they're all full. And so a lot of these, these families that moved out of New York City, hoped to put their kids in private school in these suburbs, are now having to hire private tutors or, gasp, go to a public school. But what this says is that these families that we thought were just camping out for the summer outside of the, of the suburbs are actually staying there for the foreseeable future, for, for certainly for the year, perhaps years. And that's troubling for the New York City real estate market, the economy, and the tax base if all these wealthy families are putting their kids in school outside the city. And, uh, Leslie, I mean, clearly... Uh in these very expensive areas, uh, it applies to more than just these areas, of course, but the likes of the Hamptons, I mean, the, the property uh, taxes are so high that there should be plenty of money in, in the coffers for these school districts. <laughs> you would think, Wilfred, but if you look at, you know, Connecticut as a case in point, you know, Long Island, you know, all of these governments have to contend with other issues. Uh, and, and to Robert's point, you know, if you if you look at, you know, some of the recent state budgets, it's it's all about declining tax revenue as as people move to Florida and other places with a lower tax basis. But, you know, one thing that I think is kind of interesting with regard to the private school situation is that some private schools are actually opening their doors and letting students in while the public schools stay shut. So people are opting for private schools when they may not have otherwise done so in order to get their kids in a classroom, uh, which could potentially widen uh, the income inequality for those kids who are left behind, who, who may have no other option besides uh, public schools. Seema, I can see you're eager to have the last word on this one. Oh, well, you know, it's interesting. We've been talking about, Wilfred, uh, whether this exodus from cities to suburbs will be a temporary or a permanent shift. This data that Robert Frank highlights suggests is permanent. In my world of travel, we've been following the rise for vacation rentals and hotels in these uh, markets within suburbs. But clearly, uh, some people are saying, you know, we're actually going to leave the city and enroll our students in these, sub in these different locations. I think that's really interesting and raises a lot of big questions about real estate values here in New York R City. R Robert, to that point, just quickly to round it off, if it is permanent, I mean, is that priced into Manhattan real estate prices yet? No. No, absolutely not. I mean, we don't have prices because there haven't been deals. We haven't seen deals since March. So prices are basically frozen at March levels. And we just don't know how far they're going to fall or whether they're going to fall. But right now, it's only a 5% or so discount in Manhattan. So it's not priced in. We won't really know what that discount is until the fall or later. Okay, final story. An online startup is being hailed as the Airbnb of pools. 
and its uh, business is apparently getting along swimmingly. There we go. Amid uh, coronavirus yeah. lockdowns. Our own Diana Olick uh, joining us with that story now. Hey, Diana. Hey, Wilfred. Well said. Look, talk about timing. This company launched two years ago, but has grown over 2,000 percent this year, largely due to COVID. It's pretty simple, like VRBO or Airbnb. Swimply is a site that helps you rent a private home pool or rent out your own home pool. With so many public pools closed across the country, people are desperate and willing to pay by the hour to get out of the heat. For owners, they can make much-needed cash, which some are now using to pay their mortgages. At first, there was some safety concern, but that is no more. The CDC declared from day one that pools are safe. They're outdoor, and um, you know the chlorine does mitigate the, the virus. So uh, now our pools are coming back online, and especially now, people need the money. Now, the price per hour can range anywhere from 15 to $300, depending on the location and the pool amenities. Most people do not offer bathroom access. Swimply handles the bookings and payment and takes a 15% service fee for that. Swimply raised just over a million dollars in funding at the start, according to Weinberger, and had another round ready right before COVID hit. That then fell through, but now he says they are already profitable without that venture capital. So again, great timing. If it's 100 degrees as it is today here I, in the D.C. area, well, I love this story, Dan. My first quick question is, are you using Swimply now to, to have a pool as your backdrop? Or are we at, are we at uh, Shea Olick right now? <laughs> no, we are not Shea Olick. We wish Shea Olick had a pool. Trust me, I'm, I'm trying to get one online, <laughs> one of those plastic ones, but they're right. all sold out. No, we're all AC all the time. This is a Swimply renter who rents out his pool and was nice enough to allow us to be here today. More, more to the point, you want a, a little uh, mini uh, waterfall in the background. That's pretty pretty awesome. But, Diana, I think well, the first... Well, it just turned off. It I was know. lovely, but it's, now it turned off. It's run out. But um, my, my first question is, he, he mentioned it in the SOT there, but, uh, I mean, does chlorine really solve the issue of COVID? I mean, I know it kills typical pool-based bacteria, yeah. but... We do have a link to this on the website, on our story on CNBC.com. The CDC did say that it was safe and that you cannot transmit COVID through any recreational water. It does have a whole list of safeguards that you should take while around the pool, which, of course, you want to do with physical distancing. But in the pool, the chlorine water itself cannot transmit, according to, to the CDC. We've got to go around the horn on this. Would you, Leslie, first, would you, would you be wanting to borrow a pool? I don't know. I mean... No bathroom? That seems like a little risky, especially if you know that other people have gone there. Some people opt for the bathroom. the bathroom. Some people do. I don't know. They do opt for the bathroom. Okay, then maybe I would I would splurge a little bit just to get the full amenity. Uh, but yeah, I mean, especially here in the concrete jungles, having access to a pool sounds fantastic. Seema, I know uh, you cover Airbnb closely, and, and they've obviously banned party rentals of houses. So I, I don't know whether the same would apply to Swimper. You can't do a pool party. You can just do a, a small pool visit. Yeah, you'd have to be a little creative about those pool parties or limit the number of people. I can tell you I have family in Chicago. They have five kids. They love having that swimming pool in the backyard. I, of course, would love one. I'd have to figure out how it would work in, here in New York City uh, or concrete jungle, as Leslie Picker calls it. But, uh, hey, with <laughs> it being 98 degrees today, I'd love that. Robert, uh, well, what's your take on this? I guess uh, a lot of those uh, wealth-type people you cover, they wouldn't have a need to rent their pools out if they had one. 
No, they don't want they don't want the hoi polloi in their pools. But I'm up here in the Hudson Valley. I looked at how many I went on their site and looked at how many pools were nearby and what the cost was. So there were 17 pools within a half hour of me. They're all renting for between $60 an hour and about $80 an hour. Some two of them listed as clothing optional, so that's a subculture. And there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of competition between uh, the pool owners, because a lot of them are offering barbecue services included. A lot of them are offering their pool house. They are offering bathrooms, lots of sofas and lawn furniture included. So it's a whole thing now, and a lot of competition on who has the best wraps. I like the big pizza slice wrapped. I'm looking for that. Uh, but a, a lot of people throwing in a lot of extras to get business. Well, Diana, you obviously found one with decent uh, inflatables and what which is unique is a waterfall. <laughs> and it's back on. On which note, we will, uh, we will leave it there. Diana, thank you very much uh, for that. If, by the way, you're searching for homes rather than pools, tune into Closing Bell today. Uh, we've got uh, Redfin CEO Glenn Kalman on uh, 4 p.m. Eastern time on Closing Bell. Don't miss that. Uh, our thanks to Diana, Seema, uh, Robert and Leslie. Uh, for rapid fire there. Coming up, shares of Netflix extending uh, its after-hours losses on disappointing earnings. And the company made a big change to its C-suite. Uh, we will discuss uh, that and what it means for the stock coming up. Welcome back. The Houston Rockets are suing their insurance company over a claim denial stemming from the coronavirus outbreak. And the Rockets aren't the only ones crying foul. Contessa Brewer joins us uh, with the legal battles that could be ahead. Contessa. Oh, and are ahead for sure, Wilf. The Houston Rockets are suing insurance company Affiliated FM Insurance for denial of its claim on a $400 million business interruption policy related to losses suffered by the coronavirus outbreak. They're facing revenue shortfalls from the pandemic. And teams like the Rockets argue, look, we've spent years paying premiums that should now be entitled to coverage. But look, it's not just the Rockets. Nearly two dozen minor league baseball teams are suing nationwide and its subsidiaries in federal court. Celebrity talked to me about his lawsuit against travelers, arguing his law firm lost money in the closures. He's not the only law firm. And then you've got Circus Circus suing AIG, a bunch of restaurateurs who are suing. And in fact, some of these celebrity restaurateurs are banding together to lobby lawmakers to force insurers to pay out. The insurers are fiercely fighting back. They say most policies have specific exclusions for viruses and that at any rate, claims are only covered when there's physical damage from a covered event. Now, follow me here. The lawyers have started arguing, look, the virus contamination is physical damage. Or in some of their briefs, they blame government closure orders, bypassing any kind of arguments about viral exclusions altogether. The estimates right now are that U.S. business disruption costs are about a trillion dollars a month. And as we see these states closing back down, we have to admit nobody knows how long the business disruption will last, Wolf. And Contessa, just quickly, I mean, presumably these issues arise because no one had specific pandemic insurance. Will that change going forward? Well, the insurers are trying to lobby Congress to come up with a solution, sort of like flood insurance, where the government would underwrite the insurance, the insurers would administer the program. And they say that's the only way that you could possibly do this because pandemics just, they're global. There's no end to them. They hit everybody. There's no way to assess the risk in an affordable, accessible way. Well, hopefully there's an end to this one at some point. Uh, Contessa Brewer, thank you very much.
Still ahead, Netflix uh, seemingly putting an end to the debate about whether it's a tech company or a media outfit with its appointment of Ted Sarandos as co-CEO. Who he is and the implications for the stock next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Netflix making a big C-suite move and naming Ted Sarandos as co-CEO after 20 years with the company. Making it clear Netflix is shooting for the stars and firmly declaring itself as a media company. Julia Borson joins me now with just exactly who Ted Sarandos is. Julia. Well, well, Ted Sarandos joined Netflix in 2000 and he's been responsible for the streamer's content Ever since then. Now, Sarandos is expected to spend more than $14 billion this year on content, according to BMO. And he really brought Netflix into the exclusive content business with its breakout House of Cards, which debuted back in 2013. The stock is up 3,600% since then. Now, building out a studio focused on creating originals instead of licensing them. And there's been a growing focus on local language content for territories around the world. Now, just because Sarandos got promoted does not mean that Hastings is leaving. He said that he's committed to the company for another decade. Well, wow. House of Cards, 2013 was it? The, those first two or three seasons of House of Cards. God, they, God, they were good. Uh, Julia, stick with us. We're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more now. Uh, Ari Levy, uh, CNBC.com senior technology reporter, reporter, joining us now. Ari, what, what stage are we at in terms of whether they've got enough content for the rest of this year and going into next year? When do they have to get back to full production in order to kind of fill, fill the amount of demand they have? Yeah, well, I mean, they've got a fair amount of content, uh, certainly on the animation side. Uh, they have been building that backlog. Ted Sarandos has been talking about his excitement for animation for quite some time. Um, they haven't made totally clear uh, how long they can continue to go without production, but they did say in yesterday's earnings call that they've started to revamp production in certain parts of the world, and there are other parts where they never had to, to close. So knowing Netflix, they will make this work. They will produce content where they where they can, uh, and and you know, all, we we should all expect that there will be plenty of new shows coming out of Netflix over the next year. Julia, if, if we ask the same question of of all of the kind of platforms, are Netflix in a better or worse position than others? Well, Netflix would certainly say it's in a better position. And I would actually say, well, that the fact that Netflix is such a global company and it does have productions all over the world is really proving to be a huge advantage right now. They have productions going on right now um, in shooting in, in places all over the world, like Iceland. They're even doing a little bit uh, here in Los Angeles, but it's mostly global. And they've been able to keep up that production now for months. So Netflix has been the, at the cutting edge using the fact that they have those roots as a technology company to figure out how to do it safely. And they've also been investing a lot in some of these things like documentaries and reality TV programming, um, which may not be as expensive, may not re re sort of require as much in terms of intensive product production with crews of, of hundreds of people. So I think they really are ahead and they have been leading the charge, especially when it comes to restarting those productions. But he said they're good in terms of content through the end of this year. The fact that they release all their seasons at once, as opposed to one show at a time, is going to prove an advantage here. And, and Ari, in terms of feature-length uh, movies, the pressure that's obviously on all of the movie theater chains helping Netflix and other streamers to, to change the debate as to whether or not they should be getting first releases or not long-term? No, I, I think that's uh, not debatable. The, uh, the value of Netflix and its ability to provide 
its own feature-length films, also to do deals uh, with any other studio to bring its content. They clearly have the, the biggest, uh, they, they have the biggest audience base, 192 million global subscribers. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the value of that subscription just continues to prove itself. Um, whether or not the, the, the studios continue to be so favorable in how they view Netflix, that's uh, up for discussion. But, but the value of Netflix and its ability, uh, you know, to, to outpace all of its rivals at this point, I think is unquestioned. Julia, what next for, for Reed Hastings? Is he, uh, he going to retire in the next year or two? No, I think he's he's going to stick around. He said a decade. We'll see if he lasts that long. But I think it'll be interesting to see as he and Sarandos together run Netflix, what Hastings other uh, philanthropic ventures are, because he's been doing a lot of interesting things. He's invested in some ed tech companies um, and he made this commitment that Netflix was going to be working with banks that have a sort of black, traditionally black banks to help drive money there. So I think he's really thinking very comprehensively about how to use his resources, both at Netflix and um, um, as someone who has a lot to donate to really um, it, make a lot of change in this world. And Julia, we didn't get any announcements on the call last night about a sequel to Tiger King. <laughs> um, look, they're they're working on a lot of different content. They know that was a huge, a huge hit for them. But I think also the other thing, Wilf, I point out in terms of looking at the theatrical movie business, the longer theaters stay shut, the more likely we are to see traditional studios sell their content to Netflix, sell movies to Netflix, because some movies will wait and some movies will be in theaters, but others, they may decide mm -hmm. it's better to cut their losses. Guys, thanks both uh, very much, Julia, Ari. Uh, great discussion. Uh, thanks for watching The Exchange, everyone, uh, today. It's been a pleasure filling in. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.